A couple of months ago, in the middle of the New York restaurant restrictions, I decided to moonlight as a bartender. I don't need the extra income or anything like that, I just prefer to drink inside when it's cold. This was the easiest way for me to do so, while keeping my social skills as honed as possible given the pandemic and endless lockdown lunacy. The owner of the restaurant is a friend of mine, and indeed I'm also an investor, although I've long since written the money off. While I was sitting behind the bar, pretending to work and drinking myself into a stupor, a woman walked in and asked to use the bathroom. I don't even really work here, so I said of course, and she disappeared in there for an unusually long time, eventually emerging with a spring in her step and a little white powder left under her nose. Seemingly forgetting there's no indoor dining, she hustled up to the bar and asked for a drink, so I accommodated and we got to talking. She tells me she's a dancer. I'm like, oh, how is that during a pandemic? She sighs at that. Ah, uh, you know, it's a career. But all the theaters must be closed, right? And she says, no, I dance outside on the corner. We don't get poles out there. No high heels either no more. Ah, she's a hooker. We soon went our separate ways. But just like that, a memory of the oldest profession was jogged. And the rest of the episode came together far too soon. A miscarriage, perhaps. First, a disclaimer. I've been sitting on this story a while, deferring to the interests of discretion and good taste, but now it's like a ferret scratching to get out. It needs to be told. Still there? Well, don't say you weren't warned. Around 2005, our friend Ryan worked for a white shoe brokerage firm called Ladenberg Thalman. It was a sleepy sort of place, a high-integrity operation, but equally slow-moving. Meanwhile, Wall Street was on the up-and-up. America had looked past the disaster in Iraq and re-elected a Republican president who promised to prioritize the economy and personal freedom. Outdated regulations were being discarded, taxes were low, and the housing market was thriving. Ryan decides to fish in faster waters. Interviews at a new brokerage operation called Avian Securities, founded by a trader from Galleon and some Spear Leeds guys who had already been paid out when Goldman bought them. Ryan is the 11th guy added to the trading desk, and when they hire him, they emphasize it's a 10% increase to their personnel. One of the traders he meets is particularly emphatic about that. He'd better fit in. And Ryan wants to fit in. He keeps his head down and spends the week observing the desk. Things are certainly raucous, but collegial for the most part. The trader from Galleon, let's call him Larry, is constantly talking about his girlfriend in Oregon. No one has met her. No one has seen her. She never calls. Ryan figures Larry's a virgin. Anyway, during the second week on the desk, Ryan is invited to a party in a hotel room. This strikes him as weird, but he dutifully turns up to see three women with too much makeup tottering around on heels like inebriated pandas, while the traders drink Johnny Red and take turns doing lines of cocaine off a table. Ryan had heard about this sort of thing on Wall Street, but never seen it. He watches nervously as one of his colleagues disappears into a bedroom with two of the hookers. It's really uncomfortable. Eventually, one of the girls propositions him. He asks her, Well, how much? 250. Ryan doesn't have 250. Even if he owned a credit card, there's no Stripe or PayPal back then. He searches his pockets, suggests $68, and she looks at him like he's a box of nitroglycerin. Ryan needs to leave. He walks out of there humiliated, but also fired up. Horny as a teenager. This is unsurprising. He was one just a few years ago. 
As he's waiting for the elevator, Larry comes bustling out of the hotel room to join him. Says, yeah, those girls weren't that hot. Not like his girlfriend in Oregon. Besides, Larry points out, we can get hookers cheaper in the village voice. Larry and Ryan buy a copy of the magazine off the homeless guy by the A-train, head to a payphone, and then they're in a Lower East Side walk-up, talking to a couple of roommates. One of them claims to have met Ryan at a local dive bar called Common Ground on 12th and Avenue A. There were friendly, awesome, cool, pretty girls behind the bar at that place. He can't place her, but she says they definitely met before. Let's call her Stephanie. Stephanie and Ryan get on surprisingly well. They laugh at the hotel scene as he describes it, and she says she's only ever slept with one John before. He should just leave whatever spare cash he has on the counter to help them make Ren, and the four of them can hang out and see where the night takes them. He warns her he's not as good in bed as he once was, but he's as good once as he ever was. She giggles at that, and they hook up. Afterwards, they're lying next to each other, staring at the ceiling. He reaches out to take her hand, and then she's telling him how she escaped her domineering father, who was a doctor in a small Nebraska town, to come to New York with a friend. It's a touching scene, immediately interrupted by a brisk knock on the door. It's Larry, and he wants to know if Ryan wants a threesome. Jesus, dude, fuck off. Larry laughs and ducks back, so Ryan prompts Stephanie to continue her story. She's pretty emotional, but says, anyway, her father was a very domineering preacher in a small town in Nevada, and she escaped to New York where she met her friend. Ryan tells Stephanie she should be in sales. She should leave hooking to join Wall Street. And then he falls asleep. Over brunch the next morning, there's still an item. She likes talking, and Ryan likes keeping quiet. He doesn't have a lot of experience with relationships, but assumes this is what it means when it's said people are compatible. Back at work the following week, Larry tells Ryan they have an important client meeting in Philadelphia. It's one of the two big Pennsylvania pension funds. An important opportunity. The firm needs to really wine and dine them. He needs backup. Normally, he'd bring his girlfriend to this sort of thing, but she's in Oregon right now. Ryan is coming with him. Ryan and Larry take a limo from New York to Philly to do a quick dinner at Barclay Prime and then treat the pension fund traders to a Jay-Z concert. The clients are proper adults, so afterwards they go home. Larry and Ryan are driving around South Street in a limo when Larry suggests a game called Cocaine Slap Boxing. He pulls out a bag of coke, does a line, gets on his knees, and asks Ryan to slap him. Ryan's not going to turn down a free shot at a senior executive, so he obliges, and they both crack up afterwards. Then it's Ryan's turn. He gets on his knees, does a line of coke, and Larry wallops him right across the cheek. Ryan's still bellowing with laughter as Larry does another line. This goes on for 30 minutes or maybe an hour or even longer until they can no longer make it hurt and there's an uncomfortable silence as they figure out what to do next. They hit a couple of bars, but somehow it's already 2 a.m. and neither of them know Philly well enough to go anywhere good at that time. Larry thinks the hotel might have internet. Maybe they go on Craigslist and grab a couple of hookers? Ryan says sure, but honestly just wants to go to a room and stare at the ceiling by himself. When they get to the Marriott, Larry suggests he should come up and get the hot tub ready for the hookers. It's kind of awkward. Finally, Ryan is like, okay. Larry opens the door, turns around, and Ryan can see a one-person bathtub over his shoulder. Some sort of pornography is playing on a loop on the TV. Larry is looking at him meaningfully. Ryan says, that's a bathtub. Good night, Larry. <laughs> As Ryan walks out the front door, Larry trails after him despondently. Says, come on, let's just hang out. Ryan, you knew there was no hot tub up there. 
It's a Marriott courtyard, for God's sake. This actually stops Ryan in his tracks. He turns around, and Larry kisses him right on the mouth. His breath is hot and rancid. Garlic, a bitterness that reminds him of bad amphetamines, and the remainder of some flammable liquid assails his tonsils. For some reason, all he can think about is the chipped yellow front tooth Larry has. Then his tongue slips into Ryan's mouth like a giant slug. As Ryan stumbles back, Larry tries to steady him, but Ryan bats his hand away in panic, slips on the courtyard top step, and hurtles backwards down the stairs, breaking his arm in two places. When he wakes up a couple of minutes later, he turns his head and a broken clavicle stabs him in the side of the cheek. Eventually, he gets out of the hospital and back to New York and figures the last thing he needs is a hooker girlfriend. He calls Stephanie to break up with her and she wants to come around, says it's important, gets to the apartment and declares that she's pregnant, that it's Ryan's child and she refuses to contribute to the survival of his genetic makeup. He needs to get rid of the boy. How is he supposed to do that? She produces a Plan B pill and says he has to insert the pill up her vag. Ryan is pretty sure that's not how these things work, but what does he know? Even through the haze of his painkillers, he really just wants her to go away. But he does it, and as soon as he pushes the pill up there, she starts convulsing all over the floor, screaming for him to call an ambulance. Finally, he's had enough and refuses, so she says, Well, maybe I can take some of your Vicodin? Then she gets on a fake call with her fake doctor who gives fake advice that it's okay to do something like that, takes the Vicodin and falls asleep in his bathroom. Anyway, Ryan worked at Avian for another five years, but his first month there was a total abortion. 